Hello and welcome to the Build with Clay podcast. I am your host, Clay Davis. This podcast is designed to introduce you to people from across the world who have one thing in common. They want to grow in their life and inspire others. You'll get a front row seat to hear about how they define their mindset and their purpose. We'll unearth their habits, their failures, and learnings throughout their journey. And this will allow you to take those habits, those failures, and those learnings and apply them to your personal growth journey, no matter where you're trying to build yourself and grow. This podcast is designed for you, so thank you for being here. Prepare to meet interesting people, hear fun stories, learn something new, and plan to leave inspired. In this episode, I chat with Chad Olds. Chad was actually my first sales manager at IBM and has been instrumental in coaching and mentoring me throughout my career. Chad is currently the VP of sales at Encore, which is a tech startup. Chad began his career at Red Hat and then rose through the ranks holding leadership positions at IBM, Software AG, Zaloni, and now Encore. Chad has a passion for building high-performing sales organizations, mentoring others, and has a proven track record in each of his executive positions. In this episode, we discuss mentorship, how to find a mentor, how to be a good mentee, and how to develop your career board of directors. Toward the end of the conversation, Chad shares his experiences when evaluating joining a large company versus startup. Enjoy. Super excited to have Chad Olds on the podcast today. Chad is a great mentor. He was my first manager. He's a great dad. He's fun. He's always striving for greatness, and I'm really proud to call him a friend. Chad, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Clay. I'm excited to be on here. Chad, one of your biggest accomplishments, you may not even remember this, is that you are the reason that this is called Build with Clay because in <laughs> probably two or three years ago, started doing. I was inspired by you because you were starting to put yourself out there being vulnerable, putting yourself out there on LinkedIn about you know the things that you care about. I was inspired. I started putting myself out there about the things that I cared about and that I thought maybe others could get some sort of value from. And you said, Clay, you need to have a hashtag because like LinkedIn is not very good about aggregating things. And oh my gosh, wanna... you're so right. I didn't even remember that. Oh and my God. <laughs> you had Cold's Unfair Advantage was your hashtag. And you said, you need to come up with something. It needs to have your name in it. I was like, okay, that's fine. I didn't really think much of it. And then I started texting you a couple of days later. Like, hey, what do you think of this? What do you think of this? And then like 24 hours after that, you said build with clay. I was like, oh, that's interesting. I was like, okay, that like that's a nice funny pun, has my name in it. We'll we'll roll with it. So then I just started hashtagging any of my LinkedIn posts with build with clay. Well, then fast forward probably six months, I said, I'm gonna start a newsletter. What should I call it? Well, obviously, build with clay. Hey, I'm going to start a podcast. What should I call it? Build with Clay. Hey, I'm going to start an Instagram account. What should I call it? Build with Clay. (laughs) And so because of you, that's what this is called. So you have the genesis of it. uh, (laughs) I just want to thank you for doing that because now people come up to me and they're like, hey, man, I saw your Build with Clay newsletter or hey, man, like I'm just out here building with Clay, you know, kind of making a little joke. And it's because of you that that name would not have happened without you. So I want to I want to thank you. What's funny is I had totally forgotten about that. And later on, uh, I don't know, maybe three months ago or something like that, we were talking about it. I was like, man, that really is a cool name. And you're like, yeah, Chad, you told it to me. <laughs> I had forgotten Yeah, I was in a Lowe's parking before. lot. I, I remember it was a Saturday. <laughs> I was in a Lowe's parking lot and I called you. We were talking about some different things. 
and you said, man, I just, Clay, I think it's so great that you came up with this name, Build With Clay. And I'm like, Chad, you came <laughs> up with that name. <laughs> so anyways, I want to thank you. I appreciate it. It's led to some really fun stuff. And so thank you for, for the name. That's awesome. That's awesome. And thank you for remembering it because I would have lost a good story had you not brought it back up. I want to ask a couple of get to know you questions. So I'm just going to fire away here. If you were about to be a passenger on a road trip and you enter a convenience store and you're going to get one drink and one snack, what are you getting? Oh man. Is this my like my late thirties self? Cause it's so much less cool now than it was whenever I was, uh, <laughs> I was in my twenties. Um, okay. Uh, we're on a road trip, so I'm not going to go for like my normals. Let's go with the crazy stuff. We're going to go with cherry Coke and we're going to go with Cheetos. Cause I just can't handle it. Um, if it were, uh, if I were around my kids and trying to teach them something, it'd probably be water and, and granola bar for me and then candy for them. How about that? Yeah, those are a little bit different. All right. If you could only listen to one musical artist or band for the next 10 years, what would you choose? Oh my gosh. Are they still creating new music or if they've stopped, are they like, is this it is frozen? You. If, they, if they stop, they, you know, you have the songs that you can listen to. Okay, so if it's just me, I'm going to pick piano guys. It sounds ridiculous, but they um, <clears throat> you can have it in the background while you're working. Um, it keeps me sane. It's almost like a classical or a piano take on, um, on today's music. If I had to pick one, uh, one I guess, performance, I'll say artist, uh, that included my family, then I'd say Kids Bop because, you know what, they uh, I don't care what anyone says, they have good... Have good renditions of good songs, and you can listen to them with your kids without worrying too much about what the freaking songs that you listened to as a kid actually were talking about. It's shocking when you become a parent and start to realize that. Yeah, they were pretty bad, and I was belting those songs in the car, <laughs> and I probably didn't even know what I was saying. I, I certainly didn't. And nope. yeah, you look back on that now and think, "Wow, I was I really saying that? I really <laughs> said that out loud." No, but if I if I had to pick just uh, a ba- bands that I just have locked on through throughout the years at one point it was it's all over the place at one point it was tool at another point it was dave matthews today it'd probably be eric church because it just brings me back to you know being on land and enjoying myself so um if i'm not cheating today i'm gonna say eric church that's what i'm locking eric in church he's a big tar heel uh, fan that's what i'm like oh now let me rewind i gotta change it <laughs> your dad would not be very proud no, don't let and, him listen. Hey, to this. speaking speaking of your dad, um, okay. he was obviously a great mentor of yours, and oh, yeah. um, you know I've got to know him over over our life and and our interactions together. But he was a longtime IBMer, and you got into IBM, and then eventually <laughs> you and your dad worked together in a very unique kind of way for a father son. I'd love for you to tell that story. Oh man. Yep. <laughs> like most of my stories, this one starts with one of my mentors. So I, I mentioned earlier, I like to mentor people. Part of it is because I've found that's the absolute biggest unfair advantage you can have in business. We can go into it a little bit more later if we want to, but you know, you have to treat mentorship like a relationship, a long-term relationship that requires work and commitment and all the things that <laughs> that are required to be in a long-term relationship. And one of those um, mentorships Probably one of my longest standing mentors is a person by the name of Chad Hawk. And he he hired me into IBM 
It was really my second sales job. First one was at Red Hat. Second was at IBM. And, you know, he just continued to mentor me over the years. And over time, I was a, I was a rep working for him. I uh, ended up managing a, an analytics team. And at the time I was managing the analytics team, my uh, my dad had been at IBM for, I don't know, at the time, it must have been 40 years. I think he ended with 46 years. Um, but I was at his house with him and my mom and my wife and I were sitting around the fire pit. And my dad said, you know, I'm just... I know I only have four or five more years and I'm going to be working. And, you know, I want to work hard, be inspired, make money, do all the things you kind of want to do in your career. And right now, I just, I feel like I'm doing a lot of the same things. And he was working in services in IBM. So at the time, that mentor, Chad Hawk, was actually leading a team called Software Client Leaders. And so I'm sitting at the fire pit. My dad just told me this. And I'm like, you know what, Pops, I, I think Chad Hawk is hiring and you could crush it as a software client leader. And he's like, no, 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 I don't think so. I don't think so. <clears throat> and we're sitting there and we get to talking about it, talk more and more and more about it. And he says, you know what? I'm going to do it. I'm going to at least talk to Hawk. Let's have that conversation. So he does fast forward a little bit. He gets hired. He puts, he gets put on some of the, some of the biggest accounts um, in North Carolina and and time continues to go on. I end up getting a promotion. I end up getting promoted to software client leader and manager. So I was a peer at this point to Chad Hawk, who was both my mentor and my dad's boss. Um, Hawk ends up getting uh, quite the offer to go somewhere else other than IBM. And they decide to merge the teams. So all of a sudden, I've got 20, 25 software client reps reporting to me, one of them being my dad. So at that point, um, I'm managing my dad. Uh, the good news is he was absolutely crushing it at the time. So, you know, none of those tough conversations. But the thing that sticks in my mind that I remember so well from those times is I get on forecast calls. And you can imagine managing that many people without uh, another line of management between you. You're on a lot of forecast calls. So I get on the forecast calls. I go from one rep to another to another. And sometimes my boss joins and other people in the in the organization join. And I get to my dad and we'll start going through it, you know, and I'm still calling him pops because everyone can just deal with that. He's my dad. And randomly about every second or third one I'd hear, hi, Chad, how you doing, sweetheart? How are the babies? And my mom just hops on, <laughs> on speakerphone. <laughs> with exact time. And I freaking loved it. Like it was never, it was never mom. Don't do that. No mom. Don't. It was like, we all knew that this was um, a short lived thing uh, probably uh, because technically they had him report to my boss, um, even though uh, obviously I was kind of managing him and we got to go to a whole bunch of events in Vegas together and, and all kinds of stuff that you just, I don't know when your dad is your mentor and kind of your, your work life hero, you know, someone who, put family before the job, even though there were some opportunities that, you know, could have been pretty career changing for him. Getting to at the end of his career, getting to travel around with him, meet customers with him was just, it was really cool. It's really cool. I know that your dad has made a big impact on the work-life front for you. Yeah. And this actually gets to a question around how you would define your purpose and your why. I think it's a foundational question. I think it can set the tone for as we get into some of these other topics. So I'm curious, Chad, how would you define your purpose or your why in life? Oh man. Um, 
So this question, like like a lot of them, has ebbed and flowed, right? We've all heard the Simon Sinek thing and you've got your why. And at one point it was, you know, running a big sales org for me and, you know, running a big business. And um, over time you have kids and then, you know, you have family members that go through health problems and you start to really, really reevaluate what is, you know, what's, what's going to be the most important, but also what's going to keep you happy, right? I, one thing you got to make sure you don't do is you can't, you can't totally swing to, to other people and making other people happy because the best way to, I've always felt to keep family and friends happy is to take care of yourself. But I will say my current why is probably, um, I'll repeat something that, uh, there's a, a fellow by the name of John Schweitzer. He's the CRO in Informatica. He was, uh, he was a CRO at Software AG, someone I really respect. Um, he got into Software AG when, right when he joined, huge group of salespeople, right? Just all, all the salespeople globally. Everyone in North America was in one room and others were joined by phone. And he stood up and he said, you know what, folks? Instead of going in and saying what we're going to do from a revenue standpoint and what we're going to change from comp and get everyone jacked up, I want to say one thing first, that um, work-life balance is the most important piece. And he, he said, to me, it's faith, family, and then business, always in that order. And he stuck to that. And that was a, you know, it was a transformational moment for me because I had just picked that software AG job for lots of reasons, partially to, you know, stay around the family a little more. Um partially because of some health things happening inside my family. And that just, that hit me hard. So, so what's, what's the purpose? I think as kids came along and stuff, it became faith, family, then business, you know, raise my kids in a good, strong Christian household Um, from a family perspective, make sure that, you know, they're set up to both uh, be in a good path in life, but also maintain grit. You know, I have, I have no interest in, (laughs) in providing so much for the kids or something like that, that they, that they lose the grit. Um, that's on the family side, and then and then business. And that you know, because it's in that order, doesn't mean that business doesn't take a priority. I'll I'll say that you know it's easy for everyone to walk around and say I put my family first all the time. But these kinds of things ebb and flow. And on the business side, I think my purpose is it's it's turned into um, creating a happy you know a positive sales environment for the teams while hitting, you know, whatever business objectives you have to hit a kind environment and, uh, and also just demystifying some sales things. You know, there's like a, there's a broader purpose where you just kind of, you want to drop your head and run at the wall of myths about sales, that sales has to be, you know, angry, that sales has to be punitive, that, that when you're in sales, you've got to have a horrible work-life balance because if you're not working every weekend and every night and, you know, waking up at the crack of dawn so that you can start on your emails, you'll never be successful. That is just patently untrue. I have my entire set of mentors has, um, has that figured out, you know, and most of them will say, I just, I actually just had one say this. So, uh, CRO, he was the CRO for HP and, and, um, CA, and now he's in another very cool, fast moving company. And he said, you know, Chad, it sounds cheesy, but, but it is extremely true. He said, and you know, from experience, I can tell you that when you're sitting at the Thanksgiving table and you have grown kids, they are going to remember the game that you missed more than your company is going to remember that awesome QBR that you did during their game. 
Um, so, you know, <laughs> purpose, uh, maybe it's, maybe it's could be boiled down a little bit better into two things. One, uh, make sure that I have as few of those as possible at the Thanksgiving table. And, um, and also making sure that I kind of help others understand that sales is a really cool career path and it can provide good work-life balance. Probably challenge you a little bit to expand your why, because I think that you have a natural ability to mentor others and to help others. And certainly demystifying sales is one aspect, but you mentor people outside of sales as well. And I think that you bring a lot to the table and I, I would challenge you to, to think about your why in a broader sense of helping others in their career, just in general, because that's something that's that fault. I think you naturally gravitate towards. You know, it's funny you say that because one of the things that whenever sales gets tough and boy, does sales get tough, right? <clears throat> it can get brutal and you can just feel absolutely sapped. And you'll have the <clears throat> the feeling when somebody reaches out, it happens a lot of times at the end of, you know, end of a quarter, end of the year, because they're looking for maybe a new job or they've just got a question about how to approach a resume or whatever it is. You'll have this natural thought of whenever they reach out and say, hey, can I have an hour or 30 minutes? It's natural think of, oh my gosh, I don't have time. But then what you realize is it, instead of, you know, getting on your phone or looking at whatever social media you look at or whatever, if you take that 30 minutes and you just talk to them and then you just get freaking energized, like, you know, be a vampire, like take in other people's positivity and their excitement and their drive, because sometimes your drive can get sapped for any number of reasons. And you are right. I mean, it's, it is, it is interesting because regardless of what you're talking to the person about, if it's about them bettering their career and you feel like you may have, you may have helped with one tiny little thing you said, I always tend to walk away from those conversations feeling just awesome and ready to rock again. Well, a lot of the people that you have in your life that you're having those conversations with, you, you know, um, I, I think a lot of them have a really positive mindset towards their career. They have a growth mindset. I'd be curious how you would define there, there's a concept of a fixed mindset and a growth mindset. I think you do a pretty good job of surrounding yourself with those that have a growth mindset. Yeah. How would you define what that mindset is? Oh yeah. Okay. Um, <clears throat> all right. So, so there's part of me that wants to talk about um, being flexible and having humility because growth is absolutely uncertain. <laughs> and oftentimes to take advantage of growth, you have to be reactive. Um, and I think that's the thing that a lot of people see, especially when you get into the startup world, I've just found that there's no, there's no easy metric that you can figure out that says, well, if we do this with this type of contract, we can, you know, we can grow at, at 10%. Um, same in, you know, I think of personal life as a lot more of like a startup. So whether it's personal or business, I'll focus on the business side, but it's still relevant. Um, Growth mindset, you have to be, you have to have humility to, you know, just accept that you don't know what's coming and you've got to be, um, you've, you've also got to be flexible and willing to do different things. But I will say that doesn't mean that a growth mindset or growth is luck. Luck, I, I mean, there's just one quote that is on so many things that I own because it's just been, it's been important to me is, uh, the, the no one knows who said it originally. <laughs> I've looked it up a million times, but uh, luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity, right? We people get 
opportunity after opportunity. And sometimes they're super far-fetched opportunities. But if you're prepared for everyone, if you do your best to stay prepared in a growth sense, if you're if you've been doing the blocking and tackling, keeping an inquisitive mindset, listen to podcasts about things that seem totally irrelevant to your life but are intellectually stimulating to you. If you do all of those things, then when it comes time to be flexible and to have humility and to turn on a dime to take advantage of something that's happening right now, you'll be ready. So, you know, half of it is being flexible, understanding that you don't know what's coming um, and kind of rolling with the punches that the world throws at you. But the other half is always being, always being prepared whenever that time comes. It's a great definition, Chad, and talking about flexibility and humility. I think that's really, really unique. And I love the quote you have, and I more love the fact that that quote is on your poker table. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I (laughs) love, I love that quote. Um, I love it in business because, you know, every, when, when you see somebody successful, it's off, you can oftentimes point to one thing that happened to them, right? They, they're old boss from four jobs ago, got this big promotion and hired him in this big job. And, oh, you got so lucky. I wish I could get that lucky. But what you don't see is the 50 or 60 other times that they kept a mentorship going for years and years and years, helped a ton of people and never got anything in response, right? So that's that's kind of on the business side. On the poker side, I freaking love it because I love when somebody tells me that I got lucky and I can actually point to my poker table. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and just let them know that, yeah, maybe that single moment was lucky, but I've been setting up for that for the last three or four hours. Um, it also reminds me whenever I think someone else got lucky that uh, they probably are just better than me. <laughs> there you go. So mentorship, that's a really interesting topic. I know both you and I are very passionate about. I'm curious, how would you recommend folks going about finding a mentor? Because it's one thing to have the relationship, but it's another thing to go find a mentor. So what advice do you have for people to go do that? No doubt. It's a, it, it, it's, the, it's probably the trickiest question. Um, and mentorship, how to, how to find one. I mean, there's, there's, there's truths that can be applied to how to be a good mentee. There's truths that can be applied to when you find somebody awesome, how do you ask them to be a mentor? The initial finding of a mentor is part of that always being prepared thing. Um, mentors do not have to be in your line of work. I would argue they should not be in your line of leadership. Um, you know, especially in the earliest jobs, I can remember. You know, the leader that I had was my mentor, and then the next leader that I had was a mentor, and it took a little while before I had others. You know, I, my dad was helpful, very helpful. My mom was very helpful, and you know, early stages of life. I'll say that at the beginning, it's harder. <clears throat> the best advice I can give at the beginning is that, um, well, let me state what I believe a truth before I give the advice. What I believe is a truth is everyone wants to have a positive impact on others' lives, especially if they've made it somewhere in their own professional life. So whether it's, you know, a track star because you love running on track. Um, it's a producer. My brother's in music production. It's no different in, you know, the arts than it is in just the business world. But 
finding finding someone, being active in your search for somebody, um, it's easier within your company, uh, somebody within your company that you respect. So if you're in sales, look in marketing, look in engineering, look in ops, look in all the other places, look in HR, find someone that says something that catches your ear. You know, I've already told a couple of stories of things that have caught my ear throughout my career, but find them and then ask. And this is this is kind of like the this is the overarching best career advice I I I think I've gotten, which is when there's something that you think you want, make sure you're vocal about it and ask about it. Um, there's been times in my career where uh, where I found I'll actually I'll, I'll give an example of how I found mentors at at IBM, and it was a risky move, um, but. I was I was at a point where I had a couple of mentors, and you know IBM's a four hundred thousand person company, so there's lots and lots of people. But I had some, but they kind of they kind of all retired or left the company all at one time, and I was I found myself floundering a little bit. Like, who am I gonna Who's gonna help me now? Um, because I, I by that point in my career, it was a couple of jobs in. I had recognized the importance of having people emotionally invested into your success. What I mean by that is people that have put effort into your success, into your career that will want to see you be successful. And what it just so happens that if they have power in an organization, your probability of being successful once they put time into it, um, shoots through the roof. So, uh, my team had just closed a deal. And when, you know, you close a big deal, oftentimes it gets forwarded and, you know, maybe, or maybe not. I nudged my boss a little bit to see if my boss would forward it along to the leadership team. So I, I nudged my boss they forward it to the leadership team. I get a response by a couple of fairly high-level execs, two of them that I really thought were pretty awesome. And so I use that to say, thank you. You know, the team crushed it. Here's what they did. And I've been meeting ass for quite a while now. If you'd be open to, um, you know, a mentorship conversation, I would love to have 15 or 20 minutes of your time to understand more about your career path, right? This can't be about you getting a new job or something like that because they get too many of those questions. Um, and so this, this next part goes into if you, if you identify that person, you find some reason to reach out, whatever it is, it can be tiny, just some detail. Um, then you have to go all in on that first effort. And so on one of them, I got a mentorship conversation uh, it was supposed to be over the phone. I was a guy by the name of Bob Gadotti. Uh, it was supposed to be over the phone. I spoke with his assistant and said, hey, I'm just so happens I'm going to be in New York with my wife at that time. Well, <laughs> it wasn't true. Um, but I said, is there any chance I can do this in person? So, you know, she starts fighting on my behalf because she sees this young kid that wants to come out. Uh, probably she knew that I was just telling a story that I was going to be in New York at the time. And um, And she made it happen. And then from there, I could probably call out two or three subsequent jobs that hit it. But finding a mentor is the hardest part. You're going to start out. It's being pretty loose. Just do it. Um, and then over time in your career, people, the opportunities will prevent, present themselves. Um, one other piece, Clay, I know I'm kind of going all over, but these are just things that hit me hard on the mentor side that don't wait, do not wait until you feel like you've done enough in that job, in that company, 
in that role to earn the mentorship because I have seen people wait two or three years in a job before they're willing to ask because they're like, well, I need something to talk about. I need to show them that I'm good. You know what? That person is going to be so flattered that you reached out to them, even if they're an SVP managing 4,500 people at a, at a Fortune 500 company. They're going to be flattered that someone reached out. They're probably going to give you the time of day. And you know what? Out of the 50 people that they have those conversations with that year, probably only two people will actually follow up and continue the relationship. So um, don't underestimate how flattering it is to have a person ask you to be a mentor. Yeah, I was going to bring up a very similar point, Chad, because here's the deal. Like if you're going to go reach out to some super executive at, at your company, at a different company, a co- only a couple things can happen from that. One, you get no response. So you're in the same spot you were in before. No, yeah, you, you, nothing has changed. Or they respond and they say, hey, I, you know, I, I either don't have the time or, you know, they, they give some reason why they can't. Okay, that's okay. You made the connection. It's a no. Okay, you're in the exact same spot you were before. Or they say, sure, yeah, I'd be happy to do it. So there's really no downside. We we build it up. I mean, I remember. Yeah, so true. Know, we, I I would build up. I think I asked you before I sent that email, Clay. You were part of that story, right? Yeah, I was I terrified. Mean, it, it, I sent an email to the CEO of IBM at one point. <laughs> well, because because we put you know we put people on a pedestal, and we forget that you know the old adage that hey you know they're they're putting their pants on one leg at a time too in the morning, but also they were in our position at one point. In order for them to get to the position they were in, they were individual contributors. They were a first line manager. They were a second line manager. And so if they if you do reach out to them, they they could be flattered, and that's a great sign. Or if they say that they don't have time or you know they're they're not interested or whatever, that's okay. There are plenty of others to go after. But there's basically no downside to going and asking a question. It's just building up the ability to hit that send button or to pick up that phone call because it's hard because we built, we put these people on pedestals, but in the end you probably will be surprised as to how many people say yes, because they're just flattered that someone would ask that they would, you know, want to be mentored by them. So true. I, I was so scared and I had a lot of people, including mentors, tell me not to send a set of emails. You told me to send it. <laughs> I remember this conversation, but I had a, I had a lot of people tell me not to send an email. And when I say it, it sounds crazy, but I did send an email to the CEO at one point. Cause I thought, you know what, what, what do I, this was after a few of these and seeing them be successful, right? I was not this brave <laughs> at the beginning, but at some point I thought, what, why not send an email to Jenny Rometty? She's a CEO. You know, we, I, I sell in her company. Um, worst thing that's going to happen is she says no. Um, I knew I probably wasn't going to get her time, but what I did get was, uh, four of her direct reports. I got meetings with four of them and, you know, it's not always roses and rainbows though. One of them actually said, why did you send an email to Jenny? Uh, and like, he literally brought me into his office to almost condescendingly tell me that, you know, I wasn't he didn't say it this way, right? But I got the feeling that you're not high enough or important enough to get her time. And so I kind of just went through that conversation. It was a little awkward. Eventually it, it became okay. But but I had three others on that trip to Armonk. And one of those 
three others ended up being the reason why I got the director role at IBM. And I think I ended up being one of the youngest directors um, at IBM at the time and maybe, maybe ever. And it's really, it's really interesting because on one hand I had one person basically kind of saying it was silly. And then I got the biggest job of my life out of that same, that same trip. And I was so scared to hit send and you know, sometimes it will, sometimes you can get a little backlash from it. I just envision you hitting send and just constantly refreshing your, actually you hit send (laughs) and then you bury your hands, your head in your hands for for a hot (laughs) second. You're like, what have I done? And then it's just constant refresh for the next 24 hours. Am I getting anything? Am I getting anything? (laughs) And that's all you're thinking about. But to your point about, you know, it's a great example of you have four people and one person's going to react one way. Another person's going to react another way. And here's the thing, just in life, we cannot control how other people react. We have, we have absolutely no control over that. What you can control is what you do. And what you did is hit the send button. You crafted a, a great email, you hit the send button and you went after it. And the worst case scenario was that they were going to say no. And you would be in the exact same spot you were in before, but you can't control what another, how another person is going to react to that. So, you know, why it's almost like, why be concerned about it? Because that's something that's completely out of your control. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's so funny. Cause it brings me to, I had a tough decision to make and someone said, well, why don't you list the positives and the negatives? And you know, my response to them was, this is such a, such a um, nuanced decision. I don't know if I could do that justice, but as we're talking right now, if I, if you had the positive and negative columns of reaching out to someone that you don't think you're worthy to speak with at the time, the negatives, like it, it's literally, I reach out to them and they look at it and they say, that person's not important enough to speak with me. And they move on and they never and remember. You know what? If they anyways. think that, that is the type of, if they yeah. think that that's the type of person you don't want to have a conversation with anyways. Exactly. What's, what's the negative? I it's like, what's the negative? Yeah. And so that talks about getting, you know, getting a mentor. So just almost yeah. like, Hey, go have courage. Basically it's probably to sum it up. Like yeah. have the courage yeah. to do it and don't undervalue yourself and what other, other people may view and get from a mentorship. Because a lot of times we believe a mentorship is a take like, Hey, right. I like, right. if right. you're right. going to mentor me, Chad, I'm taking from you when in right. fact you're getting a lot out of it as well. Oh my gosh. Well, that, that was the first story that like went to my head is how excited and energized I feel after having a conversation with someone, um, someone that's jacked up and ready to work. And here I am, you know, eventually you're feeling sorry for yourselves in sales because you're tired, but you, you forget that, that it's exciting. <laughs> you forget yeah. that. Forget yeah, exactly. That. And it, it can reinvigorate you for sure. So how do you, how do we go about mentor uh, w- w- from a mentorship standpoint? How do we go about maintaining mentors? It's one thing to get that first conversation. It's another yeah. thing to make it a long-term relationship. All right. Yeah. That's a, that's a big one because of the, I don't know, call it, let's just make easy number. Let's say there's 10 people that have reached out to me to mentor in a year. Um, maybe one in a year will actually follow up beyond the day after, you know, most of the people that are asking me for mentorship, they're, they're fairly driven, right? You're, you're hitting, you're hitting the upper echelon of people that want to 
further their careers. So you kind of expect that they're going to do all the things right. And they usually do the follow-up, you know, next day text, next day email. Thanks for your time. Um, I enjoyed our conversation about, you know, one, two, three. Um, look forward to the next, you know, meeting or whatever. But what's what's crazy is maybe one of them, and maybe it's just <laughs> that I'm not engaging enough. Who knows? Um, but But it's crazy how maybe one in 10 will follow up the second time. And of a you know, of maybe the last six years doing more mentorship conversations, there's probably a handful, maybe five or six that I can say have kind of, have kind of stuck with it over the years. And uh, so how do you keep that conversation going? The first thing is you have to, you have to send something afterwards to show that you learned something. By the way, this is no different than an interview. Um, if you're interviewing somewhere, sending that follow-up, message, the follow-up message shouldn't just be, hey, thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. I benefited a lot, right? It's, hey, thanks for your time. Enjoy the conversation. Um, your insight about, you know, X, Y, Z was exactly what I needed to hear at the time or was interesting for these reasons. So just, you know, show the engagement. And then a next steps. The thing that helped me uh, with, with a number of mentors staying in touch was just telling them that, hey, I appreciate this. This was your advice. Um, I look forward to following up with you after I after I do it, you know, and then setting some kind of alarm or meeting for yourself that in, you know, three months or a month or six months, whatever it is, that you follow back up. And I think of, um, I think of mentorship as, it, it's kind of like friendships, right? They go, it does go in seasons and that's okay. Like it's okay to have mentorships go in seasons where, you're super involved and then you're less involved and super involved and less involved. But I'll say certainly at the beginning, you've got to make sure that you continue to follow up with interesting things. I'll tell you what, when I have a conversation with someone and, you know, there's some level of advice I give, they follow up and then they come back to me three months later and say that it worked or that they changed it up in these whatever ways. And this was the outcome. Like that is the coolest thing ever. I feel like I, it almost feels like whenever you have these conversations and you don't get a follow-up that you saw like the first half of a movie, but you missed the ending and it's awful. It's really, really cool to see that there was something that came out of it. That's the first part about how to keep a, like a mentorship going. Um, see, by the Chad, way, sorry yeah. to interrupt you, but th no, this please. gets back to your why. You know, That's why I challenge you on your why, because I can tell there's so much joy and passion that comes from yeah. the mentorship aspect, especially when you feel like you've made even just a little dent in someone's professional life. And I really think this points to your why, because I think that part of your purpose is to make that impact. And you know, like, cause that can bring you a lot of joy. And in, in the end, our, our why and our purpose is kind of self-serving because we want to have joy and happiness yeah. in our life. But I, I can just tell just from that story alone that you get that from this. And I, I just want to call that out. Cause I think that's really neat. Yeah. It's interesting. I, it, it, it is, it is an experience that is like just incredible. Um, when somebody tells you how something went and it's okay if it didn't go well, um, it's still interesting to hear. The second part is kind of what I mentioned about seasons. And this is something I learned directly from you, Clay, which is finding when you think about something, say something to them. So let me, let me, let me give an example. And Clay, you've always been the best at this. You'll write a handwritten note, which my wife still throws in my face because I write like a child and I can't write handwritten notes very well <laughs> like you do. Um, but 
when I am in Vegas for whatever, you know, whatever meeting or whatever thing I'm in there, and I'm sitting at a poker table, oftentimes I'll think back to sitting at a poker table really early in my career with a guy named Mike Madsen that I know, Clay, you and I both know. And I still remember sitting with him at, you know, a poker table in Vegas and talking with him and just, we had a good conversation. It was a really fun night. And he ended up helping me so many ways in my career throughout the year. So when I'm sitting there, I will think of him, you know, just a passing thought. We all do that with lots of people in our past. And you make it a point that if you think about someone that you text them and say, Hey, I had a poker table in Vegas, thought about you. Hope you're doing well. That's it. That is it. I didn't ask for anything. It wasn't, it, it was just a touch. And the mentorship with him has gone in seasons because at one point I was talking to him like every week, almost at other times, you know, it would go three months, maybe even six months without, without chatting, but I've known him for so long now, just saying something to somebody when you think of them is just wickedly important because I, I do feel like if you're open to what you're supposed to do in life, and if you just are willing to kind of hear that and make an action on things, then things go the right way. So, so the other really great thing to do is holiday cards. Um, those I have got every mentor, every person that has been impactful, you know, that I want to keep in touch with at a bare minimum, I try and get them on the holiday card list. And that list has grown to probably 200 people now. And my wife's a saint because she helps me with them. She actually does them. Uh, but that's just a, you know, a side note. That is a very easy way to make sure that you do it every year. Yeah. That's a $2 per card type deal. Yeah. You know, and keep, you keep the touch point because one, it's almost a thank you. Like, Hey, you've, you've made an impact. And because you've made an impact, I, I think of you when certain situations come up or yes. anything. And then those touch points, like when you're texting Mike or you'll text me or you'll text other people, I, I have no doubt. One, you're bringing a little bit of joy, a little bit of hit, hit of dopamine to that person. Because think about when you yeah, get a text from someone, it's like, I did not expect, I haven't heard from this person in three months and they just texted me out of the blue and they were thinking of me. Like you're bringing them a little bit of joy in that moment. And then it's not as strange when, if you do reach out three months later, that, that connection, that thread has continued in some form or fashion. And I think that's so important because you never know when they may need you or you may need them for advice or other things. And just those little reach outs go a long way. I mean, you know, those listening, you can probably reach back in your life and think about the times when someone, you know, that you used to be close with or used to have a connection point with or used to mentor or be a mentee of. And you haven't talked to them in four years and then they reach out and ask for a job. Like, what's your immediate thought? Your immediate <laughs> thought is, ugh, like, I haven't talked to him forever. Like this, I don't even know who you are anymore. But if that person had, you would, you would stay connected with them, even if it was quarterly or semi-annually, that request would not seem as strange, not as off-putting. And maybe, you know, you take your time to to really help them because you kind of know where they are in their career. You've kept up with them and you have a positive association with them. No doubt. I mean, that's, <clears throat> that, that gets the emotional investment thing, which is a, which is like a, a very alligator brain reaction to all things. 
it's great for us to talk about in economics about sunk costs. And once you have sunk costs, you, you know, you got to forget about them. You got to move forward, whatever. But there is a big piece of our brain that, you know, if you started building a shelter, you're going to try and finish a shelter. Even if, you know, your circumstances start to change. If you start a painting, you're going to try and finish the painting. If, whether it's a customer or a mentor, if you can get them somehow emotionally invested into whatever it is you're trying to do, then that changes everything. And if I've had a mentorship conversation with somebody and they've sent me a text, I mean, I got a text yesterday from a guy that I haven't talked to in quite a while, James McNutt. And it's so funny that he texted me yesterday because I'm going to read it here. (laughs) If I go back and I look at my, my text messages a couple of years ago and I think it was in 2019, we were talking about, we were just talking about, um, you know, a job at Red Hat that he was hoping to, to potentially get. And that was a couple of years ago. And if I scroll forward, maybe once a year, a couple of times a year, I got a text from him. And then here just recently, he said, hey, Chad, it's James McNutt. I was just thinking about you the other day, wondering how you're doing, what you're up to now. I hope you and your family are doing well. We should catch up sometime. Right. And so like I'm sitting there, it's what was it? 624. It was after um, I got back from jujitsu with my kids and I get this text from a guy that I haven't heard from in six months or a year, but I remember the conversations, right? I remember you wanted to speak with Susan Buchanan at Red Hat because she was running inside sales and all this stuff. And all of a sudden I just like, you have this outpouring thing of wanting to, you know, dig and see if you can help that person, you know? That is a visceral thing that I have put effort into him being successful and he's put effort into the relationship and I just, you know, you desperately want to help. Part of that too is like you said earlier, Clay, if, if somebody has made it any, you know, anywhere in their career, they've had a bunch of people help them and probably help them with no, there's no chance I could possibly help probably three quarters of my mentors because they've retired by the time that i you know, may have the chance to help them, but you know, they're just, you know, someone helped them and they're paying it forward. And so there's like a, there's like almost a desperate need to go back and try and help other people because I know that I can't help. I'll never be able to help Colleen Arnold or Bob Gadotti. I'll never be able to help my current mentors that are already at the top of their career and there's nowhere else they could ever go. Um, so, you know, I want to help, I want to kind of pay that forward and help other people. Paying it forward is key. And I have a very similar thought. I've, I've been very lucky to have great mentors in my life, inside and outside professional, my professional life. And I, I certainly want to pay it forward. There's, there's no doubt about it. Chad, on the mentor side, so we've talked about it from you know, get, getting mentors, trying to stay up. Like, What in your mind as a mentor, what makes a great mentee? What makes a great mentee? That's a good one. Um, <clears throat> and I can start, I'll start with one piece of this yeah, while you're thinking please. about it. Please. So I love, so when someone reaches out to me at the beginning and they say, hey, I've heard of you or I've connected to you. Someone said that you would be great to talk to about this situation in my career. And that's flattering. One. Yeah, for sure. And so, but if I don't know the person, sometimes a lot of times it's, I don't know the person. I'll say, Perfect. Like I would love to have a conversation prior to the conversation. Can you please send me an email with yes. some detail and Chad, that detail, the the, yes. the way that they communicate that detail. So one, 
I want to, I want to, I want to see that they're going to put a little, little bit of effort because usually mentor initial mentor conversations are 20 minutes or 30 minutes. Yep. And in order to get to the level of depth that you need to get to in order to try and make a little bit of an impact, because that's why I mentor people. I want to make a little bit of an impact. You got to get to the meat of it pretty quickly. And so I want to have as much background about this person and what they desire and what they're trying to get out of this conversation as possible. So send it to me before, you know, so I asked, Hey, send me, send me details, send me your background, what you're trying to accomplish and the amount of detail that I get and the way that it is written and how clearly they can define what they're looking for tells me a ton about how prepared they are and how ready they are for a conversation. And so I would say that the best mentees are ones that have truly put as much thought as they can into this and communicated it in a very effective manner. And then that makes our conversation 20 or 30 minutes much more impactful than it would have been if we had just hopped on the phone and, you know, they had to spend 20 minutes explaining what they wanted. I love that. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's funny because I've had a lot of both where you can tell they come in prepared. They know what they want. They give you a succinct um, explanation at the beginning and you try and jump in. And then I've also had it where they're clearly contacting everyone they think that might be able to get them a job because they're, you know, not happy with the current job. And then they're just waiting for the person that has a job opportunity that can offer it to them. And that is not the way you ever approach a mentorship. In fact, I don't know that my mentorships have ever led, I'd have to think about it, but I don't think they've ever led to a job reporting to that person that is my mentor. That can never be the goal of the mentorship. And, you know, Clay, it's funny because I oftentimes wait until that, after that first mentorship conversation at the end of it, there's some kind of assignment, right? And I don't mean it like, (laughs) I don't mean it to sound so, so brutal and so grade school, but there's always something that I ask them to do. Oftentimes, whenever I just had one with someone that she was early in her sales career, absolute freaking rock star. You can tell she's got all the, everything she needs to be one of the best. When we had that first conversation, she was already in a role. She was kind of trying to find out what she wanted to maybe, maybe do next. She had followed up a couple of times. So I, you know, I had an idea that she'd, she'd be pretty solid, but I did ask her to go into her own network because she did have a network. Um, I asked her to go into her network and have, you know, pull two or three other mentorship conversations with people that are in different roles. Right. And I wanted to see how she approached it because the easy and obvious thing would be to go into your, you know, just your level of management that you're already in. The next step is people that are maybe, you know, peers or account execs in that company. The third is trying to find people outside the company in different types of roles. And she did exactly that. She talked with somebody in marketing. She talked with somebody um, in sales engineering. She talked with, you know, somebody in sales. Um, and she she respond, She sent me a follow-up email saying what she was planning on doing. And then I got another note uh, about a month later where it was actually the three people that she had talked to. And she gave me kind of a high level of, of what the conversations did. And it's just a couple sentence for each one. And then kind of her, her analysis at the end. And it ended with a, an ask for another conversation. And like, I was, <laughs> I was so excited to have that, that next conversation just because it was clear that she had made a bunch of progress on her own and she wasn't saying, Hey, Chad, come, 
help me find my next job because, you know, I don't want to do the work and I want somebody to make it easy for me because I'm super tired. <laughs> you know, that was that was the assignment and she just crushed it. So between doing something beforehand, right, having a pre pre mentorship conversation tee up about, you know, understanding what what goals, what are they trying to accomplish and then having that assignment afterwards can really then lead to this long-term relationship that you're talking about where years later, you're still communicating in some form or fashion. And maybe you've gone in and out of season. I really like how you use that word because yeah, there's times when you know, you're in the throes of something in your career or in your job or in a project that you need those couple of people that you you need those couple of people and you need to contact them. But then you kind of find your groove and you've, you've checked the box or whatever. And now it's just a a momentary check-in because you don't want to take someone's time and attention when you don't necessarily feel like you need it. And so we go through those seasons, but it actually got my brain thinking about this concept that you brought to me one time that I absolutely love. And that is around a career board of directors. So I would love yeah. for you to explain what a career board of directors is. A career board of directors. So there are, there are, and this usually, this usually is a little bit more of a constant, but there will be people in your life that just think deeper, that will help you explore things in a way that you haven't thought about. I mean, just this podcast alone, like you've changed how I want to mentor people. And this is where it's interesting it's important to have a group of people that you can stay close to for a long time that can help you um, figure out the broader things you need. You know, your why, like <laughs> that's a, that's an important piece. Um, your, 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 your story. I always say that I, I only say it cause someone told me I didn't make it up. Your resume should tell a story, right? You should be able to weave your different jobs into a story about what you did in your life um and you know your goals and sometimes your goals change mine certainly have over the years but there's always there can always be a group of people that are helping you in the long term with these big big decisions and like clay you're one of mine matt McAnally, who's a mutual friend is one of mine there's people that are and those are kind of newer ones right those are people that you know maybe i I was involved with their early stages in their career and they rocket shipped like you and they've got a very different set of experiences. So there's those two. There's, there's my wife who's incredibly strong and, and also the board, obviously. Yeah, exactly. The boss. And you know what I did when I, when we got married, I changed, you, you write your initials, first name, middle name, last name. She was Brittany Teresa Shiata. So it would have been BST. And when I married her, I accidentally made her the boss because if you do Brittany Shiata Olds, but you flip it around the last name in the middle, like you're supposed to, it spells boss. So <laughs> I kind of messed up there. So she is quite literally the boss. Um, but you know, then there's other people in my career, right? That, that are part of this board of directors. I mentioned Chad Hawk. I mentioned Christine Steger in the past um, on different podcasts. These are people that are mainstays in my life and have different perspectives. And sometimes they disagree, right? Just like a good board of directors. I'll get advice from one and sometimes it somewhat is different than the advice from the others. They're usually both correct, uh, but correct with different context and different reasons. And you use the help of those folks to to make you think broader about what you're going to do. Like, like whenever I was deciding between startup and big company, like that's tough. 
that is tough. And as much as startups sound beautiful and amazing, they come with their own super big challenges that you don't realize are potential challenges if you've only worked at big companies. I need a board of directors to think through those things because the, the decisions become so nuanced, it becomes impossible to make a those. A board of directors, ones. if you just think about it from a corporate standpoint, no one's going to the board of directors to say, hey, should we discount this product 85% or 86%? No one's going to the board of directors. <laughs> Great point. But yeah. they're going to the board of directors on the most important pieces, right? Should we fire this CEO? Should we sell to this company? Should we acquire this company? And it's no different from this career board of directors that you kind of unearthed for me about five or six years ago, because when we do have to make the biggest decisions in our professional life, and that is, should I take this job? How do I negotiate this? Right? What are the, like, I have this big opportunity for this promotion should I take this? And these people, they have all that, that you've identified in your life because they've helped you. They have a they have a desire to help you. They've they've shown that hey, they're going to pick up the phone call if you say that you need them. They're going to pick up. And yep. but they also have a wealth of experience. So you have your wife, right, who is not in technology, but knows you better than any other person in the world. I'm sure that your dad is on your career board of directors. Oh yeah, <laughs> he has not only the experience, but he knows who you are. But then you have other people like myself or Matt that may have only known you for a certain amount of years and have seen you in a different context and have different experiences. And then you have others yeah. that maybe have been in startups or in other things. And so you get these variety of viewpoints and all these people are back to your mentorship piece, are emotionally invested in your success. They I mean, want, they want the best for you. And so creating... I, 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 sir, I, it's been super helpful for me. Like when I made a job change, I went to my career board of directors and I went to those people and asked for their time. And, and they, I mean, it was amazingly helpful to have these people in my life that knew who I was to the best of their ability. They knew what I wanted. Even if I didn't know what I wanted, they kind of knew what yeah. I wanted and what would be best. Yeah. And, and they can challenge what you want too. They can challenge yeah, exactly. you when you say you know what you want and they know that that's not true. Like, you know, it's not that you're lying. It's that you just don't, you don't see the obvious. They can challenge you, which happens to me all the time with my board of directors. For sure. And they could also give you confidence because, you know, I, I mean, <laughs> when I went from IBM to now tech data, I, I made a relatively big step and I, yeah. I oh, was, yeah. I, I wasn't sure if I was ready for that role. Because I said, why? Like, why? I basically didn't have the confidence. And so right. in that moment, my board of directors helped me give that confidence because we often undervalue our skills and our experiences. We often think that we're not that good. Like, why would they want me Always. kind of thing? Yep. And so sometimes your board of directors serves that purpose, right? Or other times they are going to serve. I mean, you and I talked about negotiating the offer for probably two hours one night <laughs> and you, you know, <laughs> like it, it could, it could be anything. It could be anything yeah. around that. But I, I encourage anyone, no matter what kind of career you're in to think about who are those people in your life that you can call, that you can go have conversations with that maybe have unique perspectives and go like list out them and make them your career board of directors. And what's really cool is you can have some fun with it. You can, you can like email them and say, Hey, you congratulations. You are being formally invited to my career board of directors, right? Have a little fun with it or send them a, like a little bit of a gift or like a little framed piece of paper saying you're on my career board of directors, right? Like honor, awesome. honorary board of director. I mean, you could have a little bit of fun with it, 
but let them know because I mean, how cool would it be if, if like you got an email from someone and, and they said, Hey, welcome. You're formally invited to be on my career board of directors. You know, do you accept like, like I'd be like, wow, this is, wow. I'm honored to be. Yeah. Talk about, well, I mean, it was, it was just flattering whenever you were going for that job and, and we got to have the conversation and, and exciting. And it's almost as if you're watching a football game and you get to actually like talk to the the coach and have them run certain plays and talk to them about the plays they're running. It's don't ever, and this has been a common thread of this, <laughs> this conversation, but um, don't ever underestimate how flattering it is to have somebody um, come to you for that. So if you want, if you can use the help, there's probably people in your life, maybe in your career that would love to be able to help. And even if you maybe haven't, um, cultivated that relationship as well as you should have or something like that. You come to them with humility and ask them for help. That's a pretty big dopamine drop. I love how you said that because it really is. I mean, it's not, it's, it's not just an ego thing of ha ha ha. They came to me to ask for their career advice. It's like, oh my gosh, like I'm not worthy of, <laughs> it's more like they <laughs> of giving this kind of advice. I can't believe they came to me. <laughs> I gotta, now I got to do a good job. I got to really think about this now. Exactly. And you went to your board of directors around the, around startup first big company. Oh my gosh, and so yes. I, you, you have some unique experience because you've had great roles at both great experiences at both. How would you differentiate? Um, how would you compare the experience at both of those inst- types of institutions? Yeah, they're so different. Um, and they're more, I say, I say it that way because they're more different than I expected and I thought I knew, I thought I knew what I was going into in the first startup. I'm in my second real startup now where, you know, you're kind of building a sales team from scratch and, you know, funding and all the other things. It, there are definitely similarities and the similarities are you're going to, if you're a hard worker, you're going to work extremely hard wherever you work. And, you know, unless you don't have enough to do. And then, you know, I always say, if I'm, if I'm bored, I'm sad. Like I've got to, I've got to have the ability to have enough to do, but but in any fairly well-structured position, you're going to work really hard. So anyone who tells you startups are harder, executive roles are harder, I don't, I don't think it's true. I think it's, I think it's what you decide to put into it. But, but there's just different challenges. So when I've been at the big companies, um, Red Hat, IBM, Software AG, like Red Hat actually started kind of small whenever I was there, but eventually got big. At all those companies. Um, the challenges, there were a lot of internal political challenges. There were, and I don't mean that in a bad way, right? Politics is like a bad word. I think it's an unfair advantage. I think it's a superpower. If you spend just a tiny amount of time on politics, it can help so much, but there's a lot of that. And there's a lot of that that's necessary to the job. You've got to deal with, you know, who's going to get paid on what, how are you going to work on your own career? How are you going to help your team's career? And, and then finding out in the game of Thrones, who's sitting on the throne right now and who's coming next and making sure that you're, positioning yourself correctly. And all of that can be absolutely exhausting and frustrating. You know, working with customers and trying to get financing or trying to get something through contracts, that can be frustrating. Those are all things at big companies that you don't run into at small. You know, at a small company, there's a whole lot less politics because you're so focused on trying to create revenue and your impact on the bottom line is so big at a small company that you're just inevitably going to become laser focused on hitting the market at the right time, 
pitching your product correctly, all those things. There's a lot less of that internal politics. There's a lot less of the internal legal. You know, you've if you're lucky enough to have full time legal, which at my current company just happened, it was part time before that, then you know, it's amazing how quickly things get done. And you hop on a, on the call with the COO and your lawyer and you get it done and you turn around a contract with a fortune 500 in less than a day. Like that would never happen in a big company. But so you don't have to deal with a bunch of those things. But what you do have to deal with is not knowing if and when you're going to have product market fit. That's a big deal. Like, are you addressing a problem that is big enough for your customers for them to buy? And also is your customer base big enough to support the growth that you need? You know, at, at that point, at the point that I burned, uh, that I, you know, join a startup, they probably burned through their seed funding. They've got a series A and they've got a whole bunch of commitments to get their series B of funding. And with that, what you learn over time is there's a lot of blocking and tackling every quarter that you have to go after to hit those funding levels. And, and, and you may not have the money you need to do the thing that you know could just blow the business up and just crush it because you're saving cash for a certain amount of time you know you're not going to go after your next series of funding until then there's just it's it's much different challenges i think at a startup you have to think a lot you and by nature you do it because of options but you have to think a whole lot more about the company's success and not so much how do i just maximize my own comp plan and my team's comp plan at a at a larger company you know you have to have faith that they've structured your comp plan in a way that it benefits the business. And that is the signal to you as a salesperson, or if you're not in sales, if you're in marketing or anywhere else, your MBOs, you've got to just trust that, that working towards those benefits the company and benefits your options, or your RSUs or whatever you have in, in those types of companies. It's just, it's different concerns that you end up having. And some people, I, I see a lot of people get into startups from larger companies, and they get so frustrated with the small problems. So, so can I actually buy swag for that event that we're going to? Can we can we join? Can we go to that big industry event because it actually costs fifty grand? I didn't realize that, and now we have to decide if we're going to do that or if we're going to lean into bonuses this year. You know, th those kinds of decisions, I think, are the reason why most people leave startups because they don't want to deal with all the other pieces that you have to. They just want to do their own job. And if you just want to do your job, go to a big company. Don't go yeah, this startup. gets into equity versus not equity because usually at a startup, you're going to have some level of equity in the company and you're, no matter if it's you know a quarter of a percent, 50%, whatever that you have in the company, you have a stake in what happens with the broader sense of yeah. the company. And when you have equity, then you the decisions you make are not to your point about your team. They're, it's about how is this going to affect the broader organization because yeah. those little decisions in a big fortune 500 company, I mean, they're, it's nothing. It's dense. Like they, still, yeah. You don't even, I mean, it's like flex of dust in a, those little decisions in a small company, they can make a material impact. They can, you can have that butterfly effect. Well, because Chad decided to spend 10 grand on this, that means that, you know, Joe over here can't spend 10 grand on this. And because we can't spend 10 grand on this means that we're delayed with this customer. I mean, it just has a totally domino effect. And, but everyone, but the beauty is, is that everyone has some level of equity in the company. So everyone has the best interest of the company versus just the, you know, in a fortune 500 company, it's the best interest of my team. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you hit the mindset perfectly there. It's got, it's got to be that way because 
there are some of the best reps I've ever I've ever managed in my life or been peers of in my life. I would never bring into a startup ever because even though they would just crush it. I mean, it's not that they couldn't sell in a startup. They could absolutely sell in a startup. They would crush it, but they would rip the company to shreds in the process. A really, really strong sales rep can have an incredibly positive, but a just substantial negative impact on a business if they if they don't have if they don't have the right startup mindset. And it's 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 different, and they they can all be frustrating and rewarding and in their own ways. One thing I do want to say about um, equity and options and things like that, RSUs are great. They're payment. That's, you know, something you usually get in public companies. Um, options. Can you, def- can you define what RSUs Yeah, are? yeah, yeah. Let's talk about that. Okay. So at Red Hat, I got RSUs. So basically yeah. you get them, they may get on a schedule where you get a certain amount every quarter, every month, every year. But once you earn them, and sometimes you have to stay for certain periods of time, you can sell them. It's literally stock. If the stock's worth $100 and it goes up to 101, then you have $101 whenever it vests, whenever you're actually given it. If it goes down to $50, you still have $50. You're like you're not you don't have nothing. Options are very 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 different. Options, you essentially get the option to buy them at a certain price. So if I get options and let's say it's worth $10 per option. And yeah, you I get go buy them, 10 options. Now you, you spend a hundred dollars. Yeah. You spend a hundred dollars. Um, but if, but the, if but the, the options are usually are usually at a discount, that's right. So I'll, so let me talk about strike price, um, price of the option. And then what that actually means, because this is really important to understand if you're ever thinking about going into a startup, this is extremely important to understand whenever a company gets their funding, or whenever they get some kind of valuation, let's say they've done a series A. So now I join the company and let's say it's $10 for every, let's say every share is worth $10. Let's just, let's just go with that. That's what the investors bought in at $10, $10 per option. The options they can, you know, you have to be really careful because sometimes people will be like, we, we're giving you 150,000 options, but we're not going to tell you what they're worth. And that's like, okay, that means like you may have given me nothing. You may have given me a million dollars. I don't know what you gave me. So Let's say options are, are, are worth, from an investment standpoint, $10 per, $10 per option per share. When you join, usually you get a strike price, which is the right to buy the option at a discounted rate. So let's say they give you a strike price of $2 per option. So now there's a spread between $2 and $10. So you basically and are receiving an 80% discount. Exactly. Exactly. For every option you buy... It theoretically is you've got $8 profit, theoretically. Now, the next thing that startups do to keep you around is they usually break it up into some kind of vesting schedule. The most, the most common one that I've seen at companies that actually want to take care of their employees and don't want to put too many crazy, crazy things in there is a four-year vesting schedule where it takes a full year to get your first chunk of options. So you get the right to buy your first chunk of options after a year. So you get to buy a quarter of them, okay? Because it's vesting over four years. And then usually every month thereafter for the following uh, 36 months, you can buy a month's worth of options. And so basically you're, you're paying $2 per share 
with the understanding that they're worth 10. But that still doesn't mean they're really worth anything yet. You get nothing right now. If the company goes under and you bought all those options, then you know what? They're probably worth nothing. Um, it's not until the company sells or goes public that they're actually worth something. So you got to be really careful whenever you go to a startup value in how you value the options, because if the CEO has never made an exit, never gone IPO or sold their company, then your, your chances are, you know, probably cut by 80% of it actually making an exit. Your options aren't worth anything until the company goes public or gets bought. If they get a series B, great. That $10 share that you bought for $2 is probably worth $50 now or $100 because the new VCs have bought in at a much higher rate because your company's worth more. Awesome. Still not worth anything. Not worth anything until the company makes an exit. So this is why I, I call such a big difference. If, if you're getting an RSU package, you can pretty much count that as pay, as salary, as variable income, knowing that you know, that $100 RSU that you got might be worth 102, might be worth 85, but it's still gonna be worth something. Options, you gotta be really careful because it could be three or four years before you can ever feasibly get any money out of it. And there's been startups that I've been at and been involved with, you know, whether I was advising or an actual employee where I didn't end up buying the options. I earned them, but it became pretty clear to me that the, the, they were never gonna go above that share price. Um, and so I, you know, I, that ended up not being worth anything as part of the converse, uh, the compensation package, um, or at least to me, it ended up not being worth anything. Maybe it will one day, maybe it won't, but I made the option, the, uh, the decision not to buy it. So don't overvalue your options in startups. It happens almost every time. And every recruiter you speak with is going to try and get you to overvalue your options, not because they're doing something bad or mean. Nobody's a villain in their own story, but because they believe in it. You just got to be careful that you don't take what they believe in and just count it as pay and take a huge pay cut. This options are how people, you know, can get really wealthy, but it's also mm -hmm. how people can get into a really bad situation because they overvalue sure. the company that they're in. And so to kind of sum up what you just said and you you validate this is you're going into a startup, you earn you can you have the potential to earn the right to buy options. Those options are set at a price that is discounted. Now, the price that it is discounted off of is based on the funding that yep. a third party, so like a, a, a VC company says, hey, I think this company is worth $100 million, which makes this share price worth $10. So a third party is going to set that price. You are then going to get a discount off that price. In Chad's example, it's $2. So you have $8 per share of on paper profit. And it is yes. on paper. It is not in your bank account. <laughs> and if a VC company two years later says, hey, actually, I, th I think this company is worth $100 per share. Well, great. You still are at $2 and now you have $98 of on paper profit, not in the bank. And if then you go to an IPO and they're worth $200 a share, fantastic. You have $198 of profit per share. And then that can go in your bank. <laughs> But it doesn't happen until it actually goes public, and it takes it can take a long time for that to happen. You could get to two hundred dollars a share, and the company's for some reason something terrible happens, a, a worldwide pandemic happens, some <laughs> scandal happens, and it all yeah. goes to zero. I want to throw one more like advanced concept that that didn't hit me until a couple of years ago on options that are important. And this, this may be a little far, but, but bear with me for a second, because this one is really important if you're thinking about joining a startup as well. If you join a Series A startup, 
or even seed if you go really or really really early but let's say you join a you know post series a they've already gotten their series a you likely will be getting those options the strike price the par- the price that you would have to be willing to pay to get them to 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 own them probably going to be getting it somewhere between 10 cents and a dollar 50 right per so if you get there's it's not crazy to get 30,000 options or a hundred thousand options. Let's say you get a hundred thousand options at 17 cents per. That's great. Like that's not going to crush you if you have to come up with that. Let's say you leave in two years, half of your options have vested. You decide to buy your options because you're going to hold on to them until the company makes an exit because you believe in the company still. You've paid 17 cents a share for a hundred thousand. Great. That's not like crazy. However, when you join a series C or a series D company, oftentimes you're at $17, $20, $40 per option. If you've got to pay $40 per option on a hundred thousand, then, or on 30,000 options or whatever it is, that paper money is, you know, great. It's through the roof. You feel like a rock star. If you even have to pay $5 an option on 30,000 of them, that is a lot of money that not a lot of us can just come out with. You know, you may have to pull a HELOC on your house or something like that to do that. So you do have to be aware that if you're joining a series C or D, actually coming up with that cash if you leave the company can be extremely difficult. My advice to folks whenever they join a series C and D is like, hey, first of all, make sure that you're very confident they're going to make an exit, that they're going to have an IPO or something like that. Usually, you know, if you've got an okay mentor network and you can search on Google, you can you can get a pretty good idea. And, and plan to stay for that exit. Because the beautiful thing about an exit, if you're with the company, you don't actually have to come up with that twenty, thirty, hundred thousand dollars to buy your options. They just take it out of your profits. So you never actually have to pull out of pocket. But just know if you leave before the company makes an exit, you actually have to buy your options. And you got to come up with that cash usually between 30 and 45 days of your exit of the company. And sometimes that can be a crippling amount of money. And even though you felt great about going to the company, you felt great about the growth. You feel great that they're going to crush it. Now you're going to leave the company after a couple of years for probably the right reasons. But can you actually come up with that much money to buy all of your options? That's got to be a consideration because I've seen people get caught in a spot of having to you know, give away half of them to a friend so that they can fund it or try and get loans through a house or something else to, to pay for those options. And it can be crippling. I think overall advice is options are wonderful. RCUs are great. Just weigh your options. Ideally, have a career board of directors that have been this, been through this yeah. before, yeah. and go have conversations and just try to be as smart as you can about it. So, I want to bring us back a little bit and ask you just a couple of of kind of quick fire questions again. What advice would you give to a smart, driven, you know, let's call him a college student about to yeah. enter the real world? Yeah, co- college students are a good one because. <clears throat> If you are in a university, you have a network. You may not think you have a network, but you've got a network of people that have hit lots of different roles. I went to UNC Charlotte, and maybe once a year, I have someone from the Belt College of Business send me a random LinkedIn message and say, hey, Chad, I'm thinking about getting into sales or getting into startups or getting into business or whatever. They found me on LinkedIn for some reason, and they asked me for a conversation, and I have it. So my it, it's going to go back to what most of this conversation was about, which is find a mentor. Uh, find mentors, find someone you can speak with. It doesn't even have to be a full mentorship. Those folks talk with me. They may get something out of it. They may not. They may never talk with me again, but at least 
at least they've tried to have a conversation with someone to help them figure out because they don't probably don't have a career board of directors yet. So it's going to be about finding a mentor and just getting started. I also see a lot of folks, you know, go to more and more years of schooling. They'll go get their masters. They'll, you know, change, they'll, (laughs) they'll change their majors a bunch of times to try and find out what they want. Getting into the real world is is going to definitely help you, and it can be a part time job. I'm not saying don't get your MBA right out of university. For some, sometimes that really makes makes sense for folks, but just get started in something. It doesn't have to be the perfect job. I get it. You have a <laughs> a degree in psychology or the arts or something else. Um, I had a friend that really wanted to be. Actually, I can say the name here. It was Matt McAnally. He really wanted to be in financial services. And he wanted to do, you know, stock trading and stuff like that. He wanted to learn more about it. He really enjoyed it. And I said, hey, you know, instead of spending forever in school and graduate degrees and all that stuff, and then working your way up from the very bottom of financial institutions, what if you just got out there in a sales role, sold to financial institutions, got to know a bunch of directors and VPs, and then decide if you want to make the jump because you already have all the contacts and mentors you ever needed. By the time you get to that point, and you did that, and now he's got just a crazy, awesome sales career. He stayed in sales, um, but use your university network to find mentors. Have lots of those conversations, every single one you can, and just get started into the job market. It doesn't have to be in something that's exactly where your career is, because once you have a job, it's way easier to get another job. And know that your resume doesn't have to be perfect. Your cover letter doesn't have to be perfect. You don't have to have the perfect interview skills. You don't have to have the perfect outfit. Just to your point, go get started. I mean, just go have interviews because it's amazing how much better your 10th interview is versus your first interview. Good point. That's probably probably a better piece of advice, Clay, what you just had on. Interviewing is practice. Even to this day, I tell my sales teams, right? Even people that work... On my team, I will tell them, take the interviews, understand what the market is. If you take an interview that you, that isn't fit for you, for whatever reason, you have just gotten inside information about the the job market. You've gotten information about your own worth and you've gotten better at interviewing, which you will get better every single interview you ever do in your whole career. You'll be better on the next one than you were on this current one. So Clay, I love that. Like interview, <laughs> take the interview. Yeah, just just do it. I mean, it, Nike slogan. I mean, just just go act. Like just go do it because you're going to learn so much more by by doing than by just strategizing and planning. And it, there's a time and place for strategizing. There's a time and place for planning. But you're going to learn so much more about yourself by just doing it. For sure. All right. What is one of the best or most worthwhile investments? you've ever made. And I think this is going to point back to your why around faith, family, and business. So what's one of the best or most, most worthwhile investments you've made? I can say the, one of the, one of the recent ones, uh, came from a a personal failure, (laughs) which, which is, um, you know, COVID hits, right. And everybody had their existential moments in COVID about, about jobs and family and all that stuff. And I realized how much, work my wife did around the house. Like I knew it and she has her own business. She used to be technical at Red Hat doing business analyst stuff. And then she stayed at home with the kids for a number of years. And now she's got her own business and she's working her butt off. And being around all the time 
had me see how much work it was just to keep the house like okay with three kids picking up and cleaning and doing all this stuff. And I realized that there were some really small things that I could do to, to help just the little things of trying to do the dishes or pick up or whatever it is, whenever you can, whenever you have free time. But there's a couple of small things that um, I've picked up pretty heavily. One is making coffee for my wife every morning that I can, you know, like waking up, getting the coffee, putting it next to her bed. It makes her feel like it makes her realize that I appreciate the things that she's doing. And um, it's just something that warms her heart and it makes her happy. So that's one. Uh, The second is making breakfast for the kids, which is funny. Initially I did it because my wife was, you know, just on the verge because of all the things between kids not being able to go into school and, you know, virtual schooling and starting our business and all that stuff. But making breakfast for the kids. And I don't make great breakfast, right? I'm literally warming up waffles and a toaster or something like that. But um, at first it was just to help my wife for another thing she didn't have to do. And then it became something where I actually ended up spending another five or 10 minutes with my kids every morning, which was really, really cool. So on the personal level, that's probably the best investment. On the professional level, um, the best investment is just keeping up with mentors whenever you think about them texting them. And I will say there is a little cheat you can do too. You think about one of the mentors you text them. When I'm at that poker table, if I'm in Vegas and I text Mike Madsen, he's not the only one I'm texting at that point. I'm realizing, oh man, it's been a little while since I did this. And I'm firing off four or five other texts to people that I, um, you know, that I just kind of want to stay in touch with. Smart man. Yeah. And it's, and it's benefited you a lot. And the, you know, you've helped build your own board of directors from it. You've been able to bounce ideas off of others. And I have no doubt that they've come to you on certain things too, right? Mm-hmm. And that network is a mutually beneficial situation right there and, and relationship. So I think that that's really, really great advice. And I love the investment that you're making in your family. I I think work-life balance is such a, a key thing. And COVID certainly made us pause and think about what's really important in life. And even those little, little habit changes around coffee and spending a little time with your kids in the morning, because who knows what your day is going to look like, right? You, you could <laughs> exit your office at 6 30 PM and the kids are starting to exactly. wind down and go to yeah. bed. And it's like, man, go where did the day go? And I didn't spend time with the people I say are the most important things to me. Yeah. And so if you can dedicate that before the day, maybe gets a little crazy. I, I think that's a great, uh, a great habit you've developed, Chad. Yeah. And one thing, Clay, so one thing that you did that impacted me in a big way, and this was, this was early in your management career. Um, and it was kind of when I realized that you were going to, um, I mean, I, I knew it the whole time that you were going to do special things, but this was one that really got me. Can you tell the story of having your team? It was a particularly crazy time at IBM and what you told your team to do over the weekends with their phones. Cause I just, I have lived by this on vacations and, you know, the fact, if I ever had a boss do with me, what you did with your team, I would be, I would be loyal to that boss forever. Like, so can you tell that one real quick? Cause I feel like everyone needs sure, to. And it actually reaches back to kids. So at the time I, I have two kids now, I only had one at the time and I was, um, it was Saturday morning. I went downstairs and, um, just by habit, like got out my phone and I was playing, I got out my phone and I was like looking at my email and my son came up to me and he wanted to play it's Saturday morning. It's like 9am he wants to play. And so I'm looking at my phone and he's, he's standing there just like a foot away staring at me like, dad, I want to play. <laughs> and I'm looking at my phone and I'm just like habitually scrolling through my email, my work email. 
And so I do that for you know three, four minutes. Of course, there's nothing important at all that has come in between 6 p.m. on a Friday and 9 a.m. on a Saturday morning. Mm-hmm. Nothing important no. at all. And yet I'm looking at it. I'm you know replying to a couple things. And then I look up and my son's not there anymore. He's gone away. I look oh, around and I end up finding God. him. I end up finding him like just playing in, in, in the next room. He doesn't really think anything of it at the time. I mean, he's probably two years old. But I sit there and I'm like, what in the world are you doing, Clay? You have someone who wants to give you their undivided attention, a person that you helped create, and they all they <laughs> want to do is play with you on a Saturday morning. And you're looking at email that has that literally could wait until Monday, if not later. And you're looking at it. And it's purely based on a habit. Because I just grab my phone and I look at my email. So for the next two weeks... I made a commitment. I told my wife I had an accountability partner. I said, "Hey, I'm gonna, t- I'm gonna tell you this so that you can hold me accountable." I uh, Friday I signed out of my email. Like I literally, I couldn't look at it. I, I like, I had to re-sign in on Monday morning. I did that for two weekends. And what I realized was one: when I came back in on Monday morning and signed back into my email that I hadn't looked at for a couple of days, nothing was important. And if it was, someone would have texted me. So one, I realized nothing was important to that, enough to wait, you know, that, that I needed to respond to and, and draw my attention away from, from my weekend. And two, I realized that Monday morning, I had way more energy. I had way more ideas because I had removed myself from what had already happened. I'd removed myself from that work stuff and I let it just kind of noodle in my brain, in the back of my brain for two days without having some, whatever the new latest problem was or the, or the latest deal was. And I had two days to come back and have, be completely energized because I just got to spend two days straight with no distraction from work, be completely present with my, with my family, with my friends, whatever I was doing over that weekend, and then come back and be an even better employee on that Monday and, and beyond and have way more energy. So I realized these things. I'm like, huh, it's interesting. All right. So I, I immediately get my team on a call after those two weekends of my little beta test. I get my team on a call and I say, here's what I've just done. Here's the benefits that I had. I'm asking you to do this just for one weekend. Go do it for one weekend. I want you to sign off on your email on Friday night. Come back Monday. I'll have an individual conversation with each of you on Monday. I want to hear how it went. And every single person had the same experience. It was, I was a little bit scared. I had kind of like had the little, you know, the itchies on Saturday. Like I need to look at my email because I've just had this habit for 10, 20, 30 years. And then Sunday I was like, oh, okay. All right. I kind of like this, you know, and then Monday came and, you know, they had a little bit more energy and most of them did that for every weekend beyond. And you know what? We were actually, I think more productive after that because everyone had more energy and and everyone had a little bit better work-life balance. And what was really, really special, what, one of my favorite things, I'll never forget this, is that one of my employees who um, was probably late 50s, he said, you know what? I went downstairs on Saturday morning and I didn't have my phone on me and I wasn't checking email and I sat down across from my wife who was reading the paper and she kind of lowered the paper and looked at me kind of funny because she was so used to him just st- standing on his phone, just looking at his email. And they ended up having like an hour long conversation over coffee, talking about whatever they wanted to talk about. And he said that was the most wonderful thing. And that would not have happened if I had just been sitting there looking at my oh, phone, man, looking at my email. Cool. 
So there you go. So there's my, uh, I'll step off my soapbox, but email, phone, I mean, you can get into a whole technology distraction piece of this, but there's a lot of distractions out there and it can take you away from your priorities. And look, email is one form of communication. There's Slack, there's all sorts of things. But if something is that important, the last thing I'll say, if something is that important, someone is, they know how to reach you. They will text They're going to call you. They're going to text you. You will get contacted if it's something that is urgent on, you know, at 3 p.m. on a Saturday or 8 p.m. on a Sunday. Someone will reach out to you. But in 99% of things that we do in our life, nothing is that urgent. So true. Try and find a boss that allows you to do even a fraction of that. (laughs) Rarely will we be so lucky to report to someone that is totally fine with that. You should. And you should try and find that person. And I'll just say, if you can work your career towards people like that, you always realize later in your career that working for someone that allows you to manage life in a way that you can be proud of is just kind of one of those life goals. Well, my life goal is to retire early. My life goal is to get, you know, to get satisfaction and enjoy life as I'm working. And yeah, for and it gets, back to, to it gets back to the why that you had earlier around you know faith, family, and business, and in that yeah. pro, in, in that order. And you know, I think that's I think that's really powerful, Chad. Well, man, I'm, I'm just so grateful for the time that you spent today. I, I have no doubt others are going to leave inspired and and take some of these tips around mentorship that you provided, around having a career board of directors. Um, you know, maybe someone's going to look at options with the startup a little bit differently because of you. So I'm just really grateful for you sharing your expertise and your knowledge. A lot of fun with this conversation. And so thank you and hope to have you on again in the future. So we've built with Chad Olds today. So Chad, thank you, sir. We're going to sign off. Thanks, Clay. Hey, listener, it's Clay. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Build with Clay podcast. I encourage you to subscribe wherever you listen so you can discover all the episodes and hear from others about their growth journey. If you know me at all, you know that I love feedback. So please rate the episode and provide your comments so I can grow and be better for you and our guests. For more content, you can find Build With Clay on Instagram at buildwithclay and head to claydavis.substack.com where you can sign up for a bi-weekly newsletter sent directly to your inbox. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you're inspired to grow.